From the Decent Criminal Justice Reform Center, this is Just Reform, a podcast about stats, stories, and change. At the Decent Center, we do the research and tell the stories that advocate for smart, sensible, and sane criminal legal reform. We're joined by Cami Chavis and Walter Katz. They're with us to unpack police accountability. We'll be discussing issues such as the blue wall of silence, the power of police unions, and qualified immunity. We'll also be talking about how to tackle these important issues. This is the first in a five-part series of criminal legal reform conversations that the Decent Center is holding in collaboration with the SMU Law Review. I'm Pam Metzger, director of the Decent Center and professor of law at SMU Dedman School of Law. Professor Cami Chavis is the director of the Criminal Justice Program at Wake Forest University School of Law. She's a national expert in the field of policing accountability, and we're so lucky to have her with us today. Walter Katz is the vice president of criminal justice at Arnold Ventures. Mr. Katz has worked as a public defender a deputy chief of staff in the Chicago mayor's office, and an independent police auditor in San Jose, California. I'd like to start by asking Cami about police culture. Cami, you've written extensively about three characteristics of policing that really interfere with accountability. You say those are strong group loyalty, a warrior mentality, and the code of silence. Can you tell us more? In my work, I've thought about um, different characteristics. One of them is this sense of group loyalty. So of course, it's really important um, as a, a police officer, or you can think about you know, any, any one of us in any of our jobs, um, you know, wanting to uh, make sure that we have a cohesive team and that we're working together. Um, it, the, the issue with policing is that sometimes this can have very uh, perverse uh, incentives. And we see a lot of uh, group loyalty and, and how uh, when we think about the, the code of silence and how that operates to uh, buttress that, that group loyalty. So that is uh, one characteristic. Many scholars and police officers themselves have talked about the idea that uh, violence is a necessary part of their job as police officers. We see this in a number of different reports dating back to the Christopher Commission report in the wake of the uh, Rodney King uh, meeting in the 90s, where police officers thought, well, this is, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be heavy-handed and authoritarian uh, in, in my role. And the, the way we see this today, or we talk about it today, is this concept of a warrior mentality versus a guardian mentality. Um, you know, what is the role of the police officer? Is it to be this authoritarian, or is it um, to be in more of a service mode. And uh, unfortunately, far too many of our police departments um, engage in the, the, the warrior uh, mode. And then finally, we also know that, uh, that police agencies, law enforcement agencies, um, sometimes fail to adequately uh, identify the wrongdoers within their ranks and fail to adequately address that wrongdoing. And so this, this in and of itself, the failure to address something that you know is happening uh, really, and this language that I use again from the, the Christopher Commission report, this is how long we've been dealing with this, is that it cultivates, it, it, 
not only tolerates um, a, a culture where uh, there will be uh, you know, violence and, and corruption, and not only tolerates that, but it cultivates it when you don't adequately um, address. So uh, when I go back and think about what can we do in order to reform um, policing today, any reform, really, we're going to have to first deal with the culture and those, those three characteristics. Now, Walter, you've spent years working on strategies to dismantle all of the barriers to policing accountability. Would you agree with Cami that we have to start with culture to move toward police accountability? Sure, I, I think the focus is an accurate one, even though culture is very difficult to discern in, uh, in a police department. Uh, I've been up close to uh, quite a few police departments. Each of them had their own distinct culture, but these characteristics of the code of silence, of circling the wagons, uh, to be generally opposed to outside oversight uh, is something which is consistent across a lot of different departments. It's more simply than just what's the culture within a department. It is what is the relationship between the police department and the public at large, and what is the relationship between the police department and the political leadership in a city or a county. And I think to a great extent that has been overlooked. Now we see, for example, this year that a number of state legislators are moving in to regulate policing. You know, policing is interesting as an industry. It is a high-risk industry where about a thousand people a year die as a result of intentional use of force. Now that's not characterizing whether or not it's good use of force or bad use of force, but it's a fact. About a thousand people die per year. For an industry where so many of the people that those its practitioners come in contact with die per year would suggest that it should be a regulated profession. And it really is not. There has been a lack of regulation both at the state level and also at the local level. And that is a place where leadership in city councils and mayor's offices and city managers can have a real role to play in areas such as the police budget. Where is the money being spent? How are officers using their time? Collective bargaining signing off on collective bargaining agreements which have terms and conditions in them which makes accountability and transparency and oversight really difficult. Oversight in terms of settlements that it signs off on and in terms of policy. Those are all areas where we want our policymakers to have a more significant role, which I think is important. And it's because of an absence in exercising that role that there have been community calls for civilian review boards and similar types of external community groups which have an influence over the police department. So is that the answer? Are civilian review boards the missing link that we need to transform police culture and improve accountability? Not necessarily is the short answer. Uh, you know, a lot of people have to agree on what the definition of, is of civilian oversight. A civilian review board is a certain subset of that. It generally is a board of members of the public who have some role to play. And what their role is really matters. So you can have some civilian review boards, which are essentially civilian advisory boards, which look at policies and they may look at significant misconduct cases and they may provide an opinion. But there's other models of civilian oversight, which I think can have more of an impact. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, there are inspector general's offices, as you see in New York, in Los Angeles, and Chicago. 
there are officers which have independent investigation capacity to essentially investigate either significant uses of forces, again, like in Chicago, like in, New in Los Angeles, or in Seattle, or uh, the ability to investigate serious misconduct investigations. Uh, so you have inspector generals, you have investigators, you also have an auditor model where the oversight uh, organization has a role to play in auditing uh, individual cases to see whether or not the investigation by the police department was thorough. Civilian review boards, as I'm defining them, that more of an advisory role, historically, in my view, have not been successful to a great extent because of the amount or lack of amount of authority that they're given. So where do we look for models? Who's doing this right? And I would encourage people to look, for example, the LA Police Commission. The LA Police Commission has been in existence since the 1920s during the initial California progressive movement. That police commission is one of the most empowered in the country. They have the power to hire a police chief and appoint them to a five-year term. By the way, I think that term limits for police chiefs is a really good idea. They set the policy, and they also have the final decision-making authority over whether or not to fire a police officer. That kind of high authority is really important, but it's also viewed as a prestigious position. It's appointed by the mayor. It generally has uh, people who are appointed who rather already are high-profile individuals within the community, so it has credibility. Now, it's not without controversy. I, I admit that but it is at least a model which could be more effective than just simply having a civilian review board. Okay, so authority and power to act rather than to simply advise or handring. For a civilian review board or a citizen oversight or inspector general to be successful, they have to have a budget, they have to have staff, they have to have power. Cami, mm -hmm. what are some other things that are on your mind? So I think that we have to look uh, at solutions on a local level as well. Uh, there's not going to be one thing that is a, a magic bullet or a silver uh, bullet to, to solve these issues. Because we hear a lot about, well, if, if the police department were only more diverse, that this would, this would solve our problems. And I want to I want to push back uh, on that uh, as a little bit and just, again, refocus uh, the conversation on culture, because you can have a diverse police department, but if there are failings um, within that organization, if they're not adequately uh, addressing the, the code of silence that happens, uh, if they're not, if they still believe that violence um, is, is a part of, of the job, and if, if folks aren't going to be adequately supervised or disciplined or in, in some way, then any officer in, in the police department is gonna take on an aspect of, of that culture. Uh, black officers have a particular, uh, black and Latino, black and brown officers have a particular concern here because they themselves uh, are often victims of discrimination within those police departments when we're thinking about uh, who, who's, who are the supervisors, who are the, the folks who are, um, who are in, in charge of, of the rank and file. Um, and also when we think about the code of silence, when something happens um, and you, you may have um, a minority officer that wants to uh, report it or sees wrongdoing and wants to, to blow the whistle, um, they, we, there's a quite a, a bit of evidence that um, these officers were, were face retaliation. Um, so I know a lot of, of police departments at the local level have talked about things like the duty to intervene, like well, what we saw, unfortunately, with the Derek uh, Chauvin case, um, we saw 
not just the actions of Derek Chauvin, but we saw the officers, the bystanders there, who, who folks who didn't intervene. So I know that at the local levels, there's been a lot of emphasis on that. And we have to, and, and that, that is good. It is, it is uh, laudable that we should be doing that. Uh, the problem is that we really, again, have to think about the, uh, the officers within the, the um, we can't just have that duty to intervene without very strong whistleblower protection. And again, protection for discrimination uh, of officers that may report such wrongdoing. Walter, is Cammy right? Yeah, and so I'm going to sound really cynical. So I'm going to warn you Go ahead for of it. time. Uh, but you know, the role of uh, the black officer and a Hispanic officer is, I think, already from the first day they stepped into the academy, there's already been a degree of self-selection. Uh, I was just talking to a researcher earlier today who remarked upon seeing data from one hiring process where uh, a lot of black officers were dropping out right at the physical training part of the application process. And why is that? that's the first time that they came face to face with instructors within that academy and they've been noting they may have been noting things about the culture of the department which was off-putting to them so they just stopped regarding latino officers you know i had oversight over a very large sheriff's department on the west coast uh for a number of years uh, i was on that team and what you see there with latino officers is that they tend to be very anglicized um in fact there's a great significant amount of tension between uh, those law enforcement officers and actually immigrant uh, community members. Uh, so it is definitely not unified. So let's talk about unions for a minute. Most people would think that incredibly strong police unions means incredibly strong loyalty among officers, all officers, regardless of their race or ethnicity or other differences. But Walter, in the essay that you wrote for the SMU Law Review, you identify police unions as agencies of profound division. Tell us about that. You know, if you go back into the history of police unions, it really goes back to about the 19 teens, uh, where in the late, about 1917, 1919, right after World War I, there's an increased movement for unionization. And that included police officers. Uh, police officers went on strike in Boston uh, during Woodrow Wilson's administration. They went on strike for several days and riots broke out in Boston. People died. The reaction, the backlash was swift. Essentially, the entire police force that went on strike in Boston was fired and replaced. And from that moment onwards, there was extraordinary hostility to the idea of police officers unionizing. Then we get to the early 1960s with a real push for public employee unionization, which included police officers. And they weren't making that much traction until 1968. And what occurred in 1968 was the civil unrest, which really began in the mid-1960s, a couple of years beforehand, but really accelerated after the assassination of Dr. King. Well, the calls were for greater control over police departments, calls for stopping police brutality. It led to the uh, Kerner Commission, uh, which made a number of recommendations, which called out uh, racism in policing and violence in policing. And the response by police was, these riots occurred because of permissiveness. And we are threatened. We are threatened by this idea of civilian oversight. And they pushed and got unionization. And they used the threat of the unrest from the summer of 68 and the summers before as a justification that police officers were under siege. 
So there's a de direct connection between the civil rights movement, unrest during the 1960s, and civilian oversight and police unions. And since that point in the late 60s, early 70s, as police unionization developed, they've only gained momentum and they've become more powerful. And that results in collective bargaining agreements with terms and conditions, which go deep into accountability. So what do police get out of these negotiations? What's actually in these collective bargaining agreements? You know, when can an investigation start? By when does it have to be finished? Who's allowed to be in an interview room? How much notice can an officer get before he's actually interviewed? He can, in some contracts, even allow for officers who are subjects of an investigation to see the evidence before they're questioned. And if there is sustained misconduct, there are washout periods and how soon the materials are taken out of the personnel file, let alone restrictions on transparency to the public about misconduct. That is the role that unions have played over the last several decades and is probably one of the most significant structural barriers to reform and accountability and transparency that there is in policing. Yes, I think, I mean, again, um, you know, Walter said, uh, said uh, so much uh, there when we're thinking about uh, anything that you'd like to do around accountability, right? It, 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 let's, let's think about the concept of the problem officer. We know that like in one department, it's like 5% of the officers were responsible for 95% of the complaints. So let's take think about that again. 5% of the officers, a small number of officers, were actually responsible for most of the complaints. Now, in, in, in when we think about violence prevention, we know the same is, is true there, right? If you can target the, a, the small number of people in a community who are actually engaging in violence, you can take care of, 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 of the problem. Um, the, the problem is that police unions or just other uh, other internal cultural forces really don't allow us to adequately address those numbers uh, of folks because the the discipline process all of that um, may have will go through the collective bargaining uh, process so unfortunately it can be um, a huge impediment to any type of meaningful cultural reform the things that you'd like to do the changes that you'd like to make inside of your department if they touch on those issues that have been identified in the collective bargaining agreement um, will be difficult or if not impossible uh, to change and I think it's also unfortunate one thing to, to think about is that when we do have an, uh, an even some of the most egregious instances of, of police violence, um, you know, the unions, they, they, they rush out, they have the spokesperson and it's, you know, the benefit of that, all of those things. Um, but wouldn't it be something for the union to say, look, we are by and large, uh, you know, 95% or, or more um, uh, of us uh, doing a great job. And we really want to root out uh, this this small you know this minority of officers that are causing us uh, a problem and so it's not it's never framed that way and I think that it's a huge impediment to accountability and cultural change. Given that we have this existing structure of these collective bargaining agreements, why can't we use these agreements and use them to fix the accountability problem? So, uh, for a great extent, uh, what happens in collective bargaining is completely sealed off from the public. And, you know, I, I've been involved in collective bargaining uh, with, with a police union. Um, so what occurs is that 
the city as the employer has a set of proposals. Uh, for example, this particular city I was working with had their economic package, wages and benefits, and then a separate package on accountability and a separate package on work conditions. And so you then submit that set of proposals to the other side. Uh, they'll take that. You will schedule a meeting, which could be weeks or even months in advance. Uh, the initial meeting is often an extraordinary amount of posturing and umbrage uh, at the, that the city would want to do this, this, or that. And there's all sorts of uh, scare tactics and worst case scenarios that could occur. And then this, this rhythm, this play, now goes on for, for, honestly, for months, if not years at a time. There's some police departments where their prior collective bargaining agreement came to an end, the term came to an end two, three years ago. And this negotiation is still going on for the next, uh, for the next contract, which will, when it comes out, it's also going to include probably a pay raise with retroactive pay going back to when that last contract came to an end. In all of that, the public has no say or no visibility into what's occurring in many states. Some states actually prohibit there being any transparency. They prohibit the disclosure of the proposals and of the counterproposals. Other states have sunshine laws. For example, the state of Florida, which requires posting of proposals. Some even go so far as to allow, if the public, if the public chose, public, the public can be present during negotiation sessions. For the most part, that doesn't occur very often, but in states with no transparency, essentially the public and policymakers don't actually see what that collective bargaining agreement looks like until it goes in front of the city council. And I was taken in my law review, the article I'm writing for the SMU Law Review, which talks about uh, public uh, participation, democratizing the collective bargaining process. It opens with a passage from a letter to the editor for by the president of a police union in Maryland, who said, you know, who, who responds to an external agency's report analyzing the collective bargaining agreement and said, the report said, we can't figure out what this agreement means. We can't even figure out what the parties have agreed to. The side letters, the memorandums of understandings, we can't understand it and we're experts in this. And the letter to the editor by the president of the police union said, no one else needs to understand this agreement other than us and the city manager. Everyone else can go pound sand. Now, if you think about the breadth of these collective bargaining agreements that we talked about before, what an impact they can have in transparency and accountability, that perspective is completely counterproductive to police legitimacy. So let me stop you there because I want, I want to reflect on this. Police union president says, it's none of your damn business to the community and the people who are interested in the policing. That's an enormous um, statement, I think. The fact that he felt comfortable saying it publicly about how far away we are from a, from a universe in which the communities that are being policed are viewed as being the driving force in what kind of policing occurs. It, it is stunning, but there's another side of that bargaining, which is the city itself. They're the ones who are agreeing to these contracts. And they're the ones who are approving them. And they're the ones who are also allowing them to be in a form where it's almost impossible to understand what is in there. Is there an 
argument, because another term we haven't talked about is defund the police. I mean, is there an argument that police unions have done their job too well? I think you, have some, you, you may have something there. I mean, to me, the call for civilian review boards is a call by members of the community saying that our civil political leadership has failed. If we had confidence that they are appropriately regulating their police department, have the right oversight over the police chief, we wouldn't have to be calling for these civilian review boards. And frankly, these choices, budgets are choices. There are, in many ways, they're moral documents. And then if a police department budget is, let's say, $2 billion, which is the police department budget, for example, for the city of Chicago, and then your budget for an office of violence prevention is like a million dollars, you're signaling what your policy priorities are. And so that is where choices can be made. And so the community is, of course, saying, look, we've been watching this now for decades. We've been seeing this story play out. People are still being shot in the streets. Mm -hmm. We still have rising violent crime. These crimes are, our relationship between us and the police is discouraging people from reporting violent crimes. Only about 45% of Title I and violent crimes are reported to the police. And of homicides that are reported to the police, I think all homicides are, but let's say shootings, only about less than uh, you know, 60% of all homicides are actually cleared, right? Shootings, non-fatal shootings, the clearance rate is even lower. So this whole combination here about decreased effectiveness, decreased trust, the decreased trust circles back to decreased effectiveness. So of course, members in the community are saying, you know, we've been trying this now for decades. It's time to take a new approach. So let me ask you guys then the, the, the $64,000 question, and I'm dating myself by putting that dollar value on it. Um, what's the first step in accountability? I think that, you know, as we've been looking at Arnold Ventures, at the structural barriers to reform and thinking through what the, ro the role that the states can play, which I think is significant, I think one of the most significant areas is licensing of officers. Officers are already required to have some sort of licensing or certification that they qualify to act as police officers after they get through the academy. Uh, the majority of states have some sort of decertification regime, but usually one can only become decertified, i.e. lose their license as a police officer only upon conviction of a felony. About half the states allow for de-licensure for uh, some enumerated misdemeanors, but very few states actually allow for decertification because of founded misconduct. An officer getting convicted of a crime is a much higher standard than an officer having sustained findings of excessive force against them or for uh, you know, not telling the truth. And, and so think about discipline right now in terms of an internal sealed off box. If there's an allegation of misconduct against an officer, Generally, that is going to be investigated by their agency, and they might find a person out of policy, and that person may get a suspension or maybe a written reprimand, and that's it. So an officer's risk analysis, an officer who may be prone to engaging in misconduct, will be, what is going to happen to me internally? Now, if you talk to a public defender, or you talk to a doctor, or you talk to a slew of professions, or licensed by the state. You even hear a public defender say this, and I heard this myself. That is not worth losing my bar license over it. And that's because your client just told you some crazy thing that he wants you to do. 
which means, you know, putting a witness on a stand to commit perjury, which is not worth your career over. As a police officer, think about what the, how the incentives will be different if you're thinking of, this is not just gonna to lead to a suspension within my department, but because of this misconduct, I could actually lose my statewide license and my career would end. In my view, it would change the incentives for misconduct. But am I correct that as it stands right now, a police officer can be fired from one department and simply go get a job at another department? Yes, uh, that is uh, John Rappaport and Ben Grunwald uh, did a study in the state of Florida where they're able to document this concept of the wandering officer so that if you lose your job in one place, you just go off to another department. What their study found is that they tend then to go to smaller departments. They tend to go to departments which are less well-resourced, which have uh, larger minority communities, especially, especially black communities. And lo and behold, those types of officers are more likely to re-engage in serious misconduct once they're rehired elsewhere. So the concept of the wandering officer is an important one. Look, if a school teacher abuses a kid and they lose their job at a school district, our expectation is, is that they'll probably lose their license and they can't just pick up and go to a different school district to abuse another child. Why do we not have that same expectation for police officers? But what are we actually training them to do? Yes, we call police to respond to violent crimes, but there are first responders for everything else too, aren't they? We call them for mental health crises, for disputes with our neighbors, for noise complaints. We call the police for everything and anything. Is that what we're training for? There's quite a bit of what we call community caretaking that we're asking officers uh, to do. Uh, and if that, is, if that is the case, then that's very different than investigating the violent crimes, that, investigating and preventing the violent crimes that Walter mentioned. So uh, we've, we've got different individuals with, uh, we, we were expecting one individual to have all of these multiple uh, skill sets. And it just, I think no longer, I think it never was a great model and didn't work, but we've, we've grown into this situation of we're asking uh, officers to be social workers. We're asking them to, you know, look at, uh, at uh, you know, intervene when there's a, a traffic uh, stop. Um, all, all of those times, sorry, a, a, um, not traffic stop, but, but like a, a car accident. So we're asking them to do all of these different things who they're enforcing, you know, seatbelt uh, laws and, and, and again, minor traffic violations. That is very different than um, the, the investigation. And when you have a large police department, you can have differentiation. You'll have different units that do that. But Think about the vast majority of our police departments in the United States are over 18,000 local police departments. You often have people who are doing one role one day and a, a different role um, a different day. So we really have to pay um, attention to that as well. Yeah, I, I, what I would add is that if one were really to go in with uh, a blank canvas and start over, to me, policing in this country uh, could look very different. 18,000 police departments is just too many. I don't think there are 18,000 five-star chiefs in this, in this country. We should be rethinking policing and restructuring it, at least explore it, about breaking police agencies now into consolidating them into more regional departments. And what you get from that, you can have greater oversight and control. 
But I think we should be far more creative in thinking about this and really thinking about what are the different models that we want to do because the current model, which has some value in a country with 300 million guns, uh, also has some uh, social costs that we have to take into account. There's not a police department in our country, uh, not a chief, who will tell you that they're not implementing community policing. When you think about it, you say, well, what model of policing do, do you use? They're all going to say community policing. But we really need to get back to the tenets of community policing and what that actually means. And to me, it means empowering communities. And this is very much kind of you know related to what Walter was saying earlier. But the communities need to be setting their own priorities for, um, for law enforcement. And it, we know that many communities that are impacted by violent crime would rather officers focus on investigating and preventing those crimes than focusing on shaking down uh, these you know, teenagers for low, lower level uh, drug offenses, right? So uh, we really have to get back to allowing uh, communities, empowering them and to set their own criminal justice priorities thinking about those two things, then we can kind of um, think more detailed about what needs to happen within the police department. So I'm gonna ask if one of y'all can talk a minute about what's happening in Denver right now and the, the experience with sending out people who aren't police officers to manage certain kinds of situations. And they created a third track. So 911 operators now have three choices for who they refer calls to, police, uh, fire department, or um, a support team, and that goes to a medic and a clinician, no police involved at all. And they go out there, and, and my understanding is that in, in six months, um, they, they were actually able to distinguish between who needed a police response and who needed a 911 response. Um, my understanding is that team responded to something like 750 phone calls, and not one required the police. Can one of y'all comment on that and how that might be a different model? In Denver, the Denver Star program, which I think has been around or active since last June, is intriguing as an alter alternative response model. Uh, you know, they only respond to 750 calls. So what is it like to scale up? And what is it like to scale up, at, for example, at nighttime? I don't know whether or not they respond to calls, for example, the family disturbance calls or things like that. They're primarily focused on mental health, uh, behavioral health calls. So we'll see. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that you can look out for is that there'll be further funding for evaluations of the effects uh, of programs like that, the CAHOOTS program in Eugene, Oregon, and other types of both co-responder models, which the professor discussed, or alternative uh, responder models like in Denver. Go ahead, Cammie. I was just going to add that um, what that does show you, though, is that we, again, we need to be creative in our, in our solutions. And I always say that, um, you know, you can protect folks' rights and you can keep the public safe and it's not mutually exclusive. Like we can actually do both, but we have to have uh, the will to try, um, to try these new models and, and to experiment. And so I think uh, what the, again, um, the federal government, uh, the Biden administration uh, can do when we're thinking about police reform is, you know, give uh, give some money and incentivize uh, some local communities to come up with different uh, programs like this, with an eye to decreasing uh, police violence.
qualified immunity. Why isn't getting rid of qualified immunity the answer? Why is the key that's going to unlock all the solutions to policing accountability? Now, for those of you who are listening, if you could see the looks that I'm seeing on our guests' faces, um, you'd understand that they do not think qualified immunity is the solution. Qualified immunity is a defense for a police officer. It's a defense that says, I can't be sued at all unless you can prove that there was some clearly established policy or some bright line constitutional law that I violated. You know, qualified immunity, what does it do? It's, 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 a, it's a troubling policy, right? It's not statutory. It was created by the Supreme Court. So there have been many instances where an individual uh, is seeking civil uh, redress uh, for what they thought was unconstitutional policing, where they suffered harm, and the case gets dismissed because the officer is able to qu claim qualified immunity. Um, and the argument is that if we would end qualified immunity, officers would be held more responsible. My caveat is, though, is that the reality of how liability works right now is that the vast majority of findings against officers do not come out of their pockets. Uh, UCLA law professor Joanna Schwartz has written extensively about it. And somewhere in the study period that she looked at, about 99.5%, this is not an exaggeration, 99.5% of uh, settlements and judgments uh, against an officer were indemnified by their employee agency. Just for our audience, indemnification is when the officer is financially protected by their employer. So if the plaintiff wins a lawsuit because their rights were violated, then the city, for example, will pay the damages, not the actual police officer. Well, the important thing is when, when there's indemnification, the plaintiff is made whole. There's still the issue, though, about whether or not qualified immunity should kick in in the first place. Extraordinarily complicated issue. Uh, I just don't necessarily think that, that ending qualified immunity will have the positive effects that people are hoping for. Yeah, I just wanted to add, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. We've got a lot of different remedies, different, you know, what do you want to call it? A, a Swiss army knife of remedies in your toolbox or, or whatever the analogy. There are a lot of different things and qualified immunity or, or abolishing or restricting qualified immunity is one of those things. Um, I think that it is, um, again, I, I share uh, Walter's uh, concerns that it's, it's not going to be um, the, the, the one thing that you know, takes us uh, over the edge. A lot of um, law enforcement professionals would also say, and then how am I going to get the very best um, uh, police officers? How, how am I going to get quality people who want to go into this profession knowing that they don't have immunity uh, for, for some of, of, of those gray uh, areas? But it is still one of those backward looking policies and and as you said and it takes years to years for the case to come the officer's not going to pay out of pocket so it's not necessarily going to deter or or, ha or ha you have any deterrent value for that um and so i just would i really think we need to focus on uh proactive things to prevent the violence uh the corruption from happening in um, in the first place and that is again coming back to uh, some of the things that um that both walter and i have have talked about in terms of of the culture so we've been talking about culture police accountability change 
silence, consequences, behavior shaping. I have not heard the phrase body-worn cameras. Do y'all have, have a view on, on what role they, they can and should play? Technology does not come without consequences and there can be unintended consequences. I am a proponent of body-worn cameras because it is, again, another piece of evidence that we may not have in uh, many of these encounters. But like most things, um, we see that um, there are problems. There, there can be some privacy concerns, which I think with a good policy, a good, uh, a good drafted policy and a policy that's enforced, you can we can um, counter that and work with it. Um, but the the problem is that there's some limited studies and we really, even though we have seen um, some uh, limited studies showing that when officers are wearing these cameras, uh, that, you know, they act differently, folks who are interacting with them uh, act differently. We also have plenty of instances where despite having those cameras, the officers are engaging in conduct that as, as if no one were watching or, or cared. What if police simply won't use those cameras or they routinely disable them in certain situations? It goes back then to the, 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 the discipline and supervision and making sure that there are consequences when they're, they're not operating their cameras uh, properly. But there's a lot of beyond accountability that having these cameras um, can, can help with. And that is uh, the fact they can, it can be really valuable for training uh, opportunities to go back through, you know, having, having supervisors regularly go back through to see how officers indeed are interacting um, with the, the folks that they're, they're policing. We just don't have a lot of uh, police departments who actually have the resources uh, or are putting or are placing their resources um, in a way that allows them to do that. Yeah, I've been at a couple of agencies as they've rolled out body-worn cameras or piloting those, uh, heard the initial resistance by officers to having body-worn cameras. And so I, I do have a couple of observations. The first thing is that I think on the whole, they are a net positive in increasing accountability. However, the research on asking the questions of our body-worn cameras a success is that it depends. And the it depends is what question are you asking? So what we've seen so far, for example, is that the presence of body-worn cameras does not decrease the use of force necessarily or the severity of the use of force. And so I think just using that metric, uh, the, the evidence is not that clear. There has not been as much research so far in the question of whether or not body-worn cameras are successful in increasing accountability. Is it holding officers to account? Now, why is it though that it hasn't decreased force that much? And this is where I need to ask people to kind of think about use of force and the standards for use of force. The reality is, is that the vast majority of the force used by police officers is found to be in policy. A very small percentage of force is out of policy. An even smaller percentage of force is found to rise to criminal conduct. And we see this if there are internal investigations of force or external agency investigations of force. The outcomes don't change significantly that much. It's a question of what is our force standard. So we really need to be thinking about what do we want body-worn cameras to do? What do we want our use of force policies to say? And what is the dividing line between excessive force and reasonable force? 
Those are all kind of these big meta questions, but they are important questions. What would you tell a law student or, or someone who's not a law student, someone who is a, a citizen in the community who's, who's watching or listening and says, I want to do something, but I don't know how. There's this enormous bureaucracy. What does one person do? What would you tell them to go do? Uh, well, I'll, for folks who are not law students and who are not contemplating becoming law students, I'd say get aware and get informed. There are examples where community activism has had a real impact. I looked at the city of Austin and what the Austin Justice Coalition did in breaking open the collective bargaining process. The community was at the table, or if not at the table, at least in the room and demanding change. And they saw some real changes in their last contract. Uh, does it mean that everything's been fixed in Austin? Not by any stretch of the imagination, but movement was made. But by getting involved, by asking, how are the police spending their money? How are they spending their time? What are their policies? What kind of lawsuits are they settling? How much force are they using? How many traffic stops are they committing? Who is being stopped? Who is being searched? Are we seeing evidence of racial disparities? Those are all questions that have to be asked. For a law student, this is an extraordinary moment. You need to be in a position to take in a broad range of information and perspectives to be able to try to problem solve some of these intractable challenges that we've had in the criminal justice system. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Just Reform. If you'd like to take a look at our guests' essays, you can find them on our website, or you can look for them in the SMU Law Review, where they're published in Volume 74, Issue 3. Join us next time to talk about racial injustice in the criminal legal system. We'll be joined by Professor Bennett Capers at Fordham Law School and Samel Trivedi at the ACLU's Criminal Law Reform Project. To learn more about criminal legal reform, follow us on Twitter, that's at SMULawDecent. Visit our website, decentcenter.org, or subscribe to our YouTube channel where you'll find us at Decent Criminal Justice Reform Center. Thank you.